we'll get going. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this room full of men and women who um, desire, they're expressing the desire to learn more about your word and to learn about your church, your bride, your body, uh, as we study what the whole Bible has to say about uh, the doctrine of the church. Would you uh, bless us as we discuss together, as we open your word, uh, help us, God, to equip one another as we build up your church in love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to catch up the folks that weren't here last week, last week I didn't even talk about the church at all, so you really didn't miss any meat of the, of the, doc, of the actual doctrine. What we talked about last week was doctrine itself. What doctrine is? Doctrine simply is what the whole Bible has to say on a subject. And that's what we're seeking to do in here. We're going to ask seven questions over the next seven weeks. Uh, today's question is simply, what is the church? And we're going to seek to answer that question by Scripture. We're going to let the whole Bible influence. Now, obviously, we can't turn to every passage today that the Bible has to say, uh, every passage in the Bible that has something to say about the church. But we're going to look at a lot of them. I've written them up here on the board. Um, the shorthand, by the way, hopefully you can figure it out. If not, look up one that's not done in shorthand. But um, that, those are the shorthand, those are the official academic abbreviations for books of the Bible, if you were wondering, okay? I've had to use a lot of them uh, in the last couple of years. So uh, if you will do me a favor, this will be helpful for us. If you don't mind reading in front of people, if you will look up one of these, and when I say, all right, well, somebody read Ephesians 5.25, you'll read it for us. Okay, and read it loudly, speak when you hear. If somebody doesn't want to read it, uh, I'll read it. There are some that I'm going to read myself, okay, because I'll, I'll break them down. And there's some that I'm going to tell us to turn to. And that'll just be our, that'll be our custom, okay, as we, as we walk through these things. So uh, what we're starting with is a question on, at, at, to kind of get us going. There's two questions. These things are connected to one another. I'm going to give you... I don't know, five, seven minutes at your table. So if there's just a couple people at your table, you may, for the point of the discussions, want to join in with one of the other ones, unless you just want to talk together. But here, here's where I want us to start. So the first question is pretty simple. And that is, what do you think most people mean when they say the church or my church? And maybe they mean two different things when they say that. That's why I put those in, in, two, in, in, in quotations and separated them out. So I'm not asking necessarily what you think, although you can share what you think, but what do you think most people mean? So when, when somebody hears the word the church, the, the words, the church or my church, what, what do people mean? And then if you do the reading, and hopefully at least one person at your table do the reading, based on your understanding of the assigned reading, why are those meanings likely inaccurate? And inaccurate may not be the right word. It may be why are those, uh, why are those meanings likely insufficient? So what I'd like for you to do is first identify what most people think when they hear the words, the church or my church. And then based off of the reading, if you did it, this is kind of the test for you. Uh, how, how are those definitions, the, the, how, how are those understandings maybe flawed a bit? Maybe they're all the way flawed, right? We can think of some examples of them being all the way flawed. Maybe they're just kind of flawed. Maybe they're just in, in, inadequate, not fully describing what, what the church is. And like I did last week, I'm doing the same thing this week. I'm not giving you the definitions yet. I'm going to ask you about things because we're, we're discussing, all right? So get, get with the people at your table, take five, six minutes, talk through these things, and then I'll call us back together. All right, so 
let me let me get us going here. When when I was trying to listen, I try to listen at different tables at different times. I think if you kind of focus, you can pick up on what people are saying. And so, when people think of the church, I heard several different people talk about. Well, when I hear of the church, I, I don't think of you know a specific church, but I think more of like the broad church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. A couple of things we're going to talk about tonight. The um, the church, right? The the what we'll describe as the invisible church, right? Um, that the, the big big C church. Then when I think of my church, I think of the little C church, right? Nansmond River Baptist Church or the church I grew up in. I think I even heard a couple of people talking about, when I think of my church, like I think about the church that I grew up in, like my home church or a church my parents were in or the church I was baptized in. And and so most often it's the local church. And then some people talked, because we're talking about other people's perspective here. So I heard several people talk about, you know, some people think the church is the building, right? And you drive past a church, you know. Where are you? Oh, I'm in the church parking lot, you know. So we're, we're kind of referring to it as, as a building. Some of these things are, are good, right? These The church is both invisible and visible. It is universal and local. It is... I heard this group over here talk about militant and triumphant. That's great. That's how I know you did the reading because nobody ever refers to it as militant or triumphant anymore, although those were common historical terms for the universal and uh, local church. But so, so we, 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 got, we get some of those things right, but certainly it's not a building. You know, certainly it's not a club. Uh, but, but there is both an um, unseen universal dimension and a seen local dimension to the church. However, when we say the church, we can be talking about both of those things at the same time. And we don't need to necessarily make a distinction. Now, sometimes we need to make a distinction, um, but sometimes the distinction grows a little too much. And so it's okay to just say the church or my church and be thinking about how our local church is an expression of, and that's the way that I always talk about it when I teach Connect class and I talk about our uh, core, core belief that talks about the church as universal and local. The Nazareth River Baptist Church is a local expression of the universal uh, church. In the, um, did you read the part of the book where he talked about landmarkism? You remember that, that part that arose in the 1800s? Uh, it was really a discussion of is the universal church even a real thing, right? That if, if the local church disappeared, would the universal church still, uh, still even exist? And that's, that's, a pretty interesting, uh, that's a pretty interesting thing to think about a little bit. And it became a pretty popular opinion in some places in, uh, in 19th century American theology. So the church has thought about these things. And say, again, the church and people... Making up the, the body of Christ has thought about these things. So let's, let's start with, we're going to try to answer today that question, what is the church? And we're going to talk about first the nature of the church. So we're going to talk about some of these words, invisible, visible, local, universal. Um, I'm not really going to go into uh, uh, triumphant and uh, militant so much. But if you wanted to read that, it's uh, on page 95 of the, of the book. If you didn't get to that part yet, it's, uh, it's, a little, it's a good little thing to read. It's a good expression of the church. Um, but I want to first start by defining the church. 
Now, uh, Dever offers a, a definition at the, on page three, I think, um, which I'll read in a moment. And then he footnotes some definitions that I think are incredible, uh, but they are long and arduous. And there is a theologian I quote regularly that we have, um, I used to teach out of his book uh, called Bible Doctrine. His name's Wayne Grudem. And um, I think of modern evangelical theologians that have written systematic theologies, which there are not that many, because not many, I brought a system. I remember that big, big book that I brought in here. Not, not a lot of people have undertaken, I mean, that's a, that's a lifetime achievement, you know? So there's not a lot of them that are in pop, popular evangelical theology, modern evangelical theology, maybe half a dozen or so that are really referenced a lot. But I think more than all of them, Grudem gives the best definitions. And the reason I think he gives the best definitions is because he gives the shortest definitions. And if I read you a long definition, you're not likely to remember it, even though it may actually better describe what we're talking about. But Grudem's got a way with words when it comes to definitions. So here's how he describes it. He says... The church is the community of all true believers for all time. That's his definition of the church. Now let's compare that, if we will, for a moment, to page three of the book here, where, did get past this long introduction, where Dever says the church is um, the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving him in his world. Well, that's longer than Grudem's definition, but they're really saying the same thing, right? When Grudem says the church is the community of all true believers for all time, and uh, Endeavor says that the church is people called by God's grace, that's true believers, through faith in Christ, that is people of all time because we believe all people who are saved, whether they were pre Jesus, meaning Old Testament people, or post-Jesus, meaning New Testament people, are still saved in faith in Jesus Christ. Either faith looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise or faith looking back on the fulfillment of the promise. Um, together, serving him in the world, right? That's what Dever says. Well, Grudem just calls that a community. So they're really saying the same thing. Now, I'm not going to read them for the sake of time, but I would encourage you. Most people don't read footnotes. I will say I've learned this in my... Uh, academic pursuits that sometimes the best information is in the footnotes and uh, he quotes two people one from the reformation period from 1589 henry barrow and he quotes another um from the early american church i believe it was the the um association the baptist association in charleston uh which was what maybe the first maybe the second it was the first baptist association in the south i think philly beat them um if I'm thinking my church history correct, but he quotes two like lengthy, and I encourage like read those, spend some time with them, because man, they're really really good. Um, but they're five or six times as long as Grudem's simple definition that the church is the community of, tr of all true believers for all time. So that's what we're going to run with. Okay. So when we see the word church in Scripture, and I addressed this a little bit last week when we were talking about the word ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. Any word that ends in ology means study. And the first word is probably a Latin or Greek root word. Uh, and the root word there is ecclesia, which is the Greek word for assembly or gathering. And it's used somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 times or so in the New Testament. And 100 plus of those times, it's used specifically to describe the church. 
but not always to describe a local church. Sometimes it's talking about the universal church. Sometimes it's talking about the local church. Uh, for instance, in Ephesians chapter uh, 5, does somebody have that one to read it? I told you I was going to do that. Somebody look up the first one. If not, my Bible's already open to Ephesians. All right, go ahead. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah. So, now I know this verse is about husbands and wives, right? But remember, we're looking at what the whole Bible has to say on a topic. And sometimes biblical authors reference another principle, which is a principle that, we, that is assumed in the text. The principle that is assumed in the text, Paul has actually already addressed earlier in his letter in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he's addressed the church early. He's going to go back to that same idea later. And here's what Paul establishes just in this one letter, right? That the church is this unique body of people that has Christ as its head, right? This is Ephesians 1, that has Christ as its head. We are his body and the fullness of Christ. So that the church is the representation of Christ in the world, we are the community of believers. Whether we're talking about a local expression or we're talking about a universal expression, we're still that thing, that we are the body of Christ in Ephesians 5. So Paul assumes that when we get to Ephesians 5. And what does he say? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. So what's the assumption that Paul makes? That because the imperative is that husbands love their wives. So the assumed doctrinal truth is that Christ loves the church. That we are a unique organization. We're, we're a unique community. We are a community of believers. Now, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is making his speech uh, right before they kill him. We're not going to read this one. But in Acts 7, you just take my word on it, Peter... Uh, Sorry, Stephen's making his speech. You can turn there if you want to. Uh, I'm just going to tell you what's happening here. He, he's making his speech uh, right before they stone him to death. And he, um, uh, he filibusters a little bit, uh, which is great. He was like, let me walk you through, before you stone me, let me walk you through the entire Bible. That's what Stephen did. Um, can't blame him. He's about to be stoned, right? But what is he really doing? I'm joking. He, he's really sharing the gospel with him. He's showing how the whole gospel speaks to the, and when Stephen uses, Stephen then looks back to the people of God in the Old Testament gathered in the wilderness in Acts 7 verse 38, and he calls them the ecclesia, the church, the assembly. So he uses a Greek word in the New Testament that was the, the translated Hebrew to Greek word in what was known as the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, looking back and saying, we are them. What you're doing now, who you're persecuting now, is, is, is them. And we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about that uh, when we get to the section on Israel and the church here in a minute. Uh, but just to help us form a foundation of this definition, that the church is, a, is the community of all true believers for all time. And then there's these local expressions of it, which we'll, we'll see. So let's talk about a couple of those things that make up the nature of the church. He wrote about these, Dever did, in that second section that I had you read. Um, he talked, I think, about four of them. I only want to talk about two. The first is the invisible yet visible church. 
that the church is both visible, invisible, meaning when we say the invisible church, it means I can't look out there and see who's Christians, right? There's not a mark upon you that, that tells me who's a Christian. I can't even look back in history. Like I, I can't read um, you know, a, a census of people like, oh, these people were Christian and these people weren't. Um, because it, it's invisible. Only God knows, right? Does somebody have 2 Timothy 2, 19 that they can read for us? All right, so who knows who's in the church? The Lord does. God does. That's what... That's, that's what Part of Paul's argument there, right? God knows. We don't know. We can't see it as far as this, the big, the full community of all people in the faith for all times. We can't name them. We can't number them. But there is someone who can, and it's God. That's the invisible church. So when we say the church is universal or the church is invisible, those are, those are, the, same, those are the same things. We're going to talk about universal and local in a minute. When we say invisible, we're meaning it's invisible to our eyes, not invisible to God's eyes. It's visible, though, to us in that I'm looking at you and I'm seeing you right now. And I told you last week that my assumption as I teach this class is that I'm teaching this class to Christian people. That when we gather here on the Lord's Day or we gather here to encourage and strengthen and equip one another, when we gather here to fellowship together, when we're doing things that the Bible tells us to do, we are the church, and people drive by, they may think they see a building, and that's the church. That's not the church. What is the church? It's the visible, gathered, local expression of God's people. So it's fine to affirm, it's actually biblical to affirm, that the church is both of those things. So Paul didn't write to invisible people when he wrote his letters, right? So in, uh, uh, just take Romans. My Bible's open to Romans. Take, take Romans, right? There was a church in Rome. It was a visible church in Rome that Paul writes a letter to. He could, if he was alive today, could write a letter to Nansman River Baptist Church, and that would be the visible church. The invisible church is that which only God can see. But the church is also, we also describe the church as local and universal. Now, in my notes, I, I didn't really do you any favors here because I, I, I mixed up the order. So invisible yet visible should, then it should read the church is universal and local if we were trying to keep these things in order. Because invisible goes with universal and visible goes with local. And that makes a lot of sense to us. Let's just really quickly see some different places in Scripture where, where, the, gospel, where the, the New Testament authors use these words in some different ways. It's going to help us with this. So we're going to read the next four kind of in a row. So if you want to look one of those up, uh, you can for us. My Bible's already open to Romans 16. So I'm going to read that one for us. In Romans 16, verse 5, Paul says, Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved uh, Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. And then he goes on, greet Mary and He's greeting all these people. These are actual visible people that meet in verse 5, the church in their house. He has a very specific local church in mind, doesn't he? So the, the letter, you know, Paul, if he was writing to, to our church today, maybe he would greet some of you. Maybe he would greet some of our elders. Maybe he would greet some of our deacons, some of our smart. Like, that's what he's doing. Like he's naming people. He, Paul is naming names, you know? Uh, in a time where, in a place where... <laughs> 
I could have got him in a little bit of trouble, uh, but yet he did it anyway. And because uh, this is these are real people that were part of that local church. What about First Corinthians sixteen nineteen? Does somebody have that one? Got it. All right. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord, with the church that is their house. All right. So yeah, this one's fun though. So he's he's got two uses of the word church there. One, the churches in Asia, and then the church that is in their house. So we have we have a more than one, and then we have one. But they're all still what? They're all, they're, they're all still a church. What about Acts 9.31? Yeah. All right. Meanwhile, the church had peace uh, throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and grew and strength in numbers. The believers learned how to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. All right. So this even gets bigger. This is, this is multiple regions that, that he's writing about, right? So we've gone from church, it's a small little group of people meeting in this house, to a few churches that are in this one region, especially this one church. Now, multiple churches in multiple regions, right? It's bigger and bigger. When we get to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I've got this open here, Paul says, and God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating of various kinds of tongues. This, he's writing to a specific church, right, where these things should have shown up, but these aren't the only places they should have shown up. He's making an argument that this is, that God has, and we're going to get to spiritual gifts. I'm pretty sure spiritual gifts is on my, it's a part of what I'm going to talk about towards the end like in, in two months. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll cover some of this, but just for our purposes today, let's, let's stick with the church. This is, what, this is what Paul's saying, that God gifts the church. We'll get to how he does it later. But God gifts the church, and not just this church, not just the church at Corinth, but the church. So you see, just in these four different passages, we've seen the term church go from this small group of people that was small enough to meet in somebody's house to a region, regions, and everybody. Because the church is invisible and visible. It is local and it is universal. And we need to, we need to have it in our minds about that. When, when we have a correct, a right understanding of this, it helps us not be quite as myopic as we often tend to be. You know what that word, sorry. Um, myopic means that you, you, all you see is what's right in front of your face, right? And that's often how we think about the church. We think about that everything's going on in the church is going on in my church. And we're, it, it, it really is a detriment to us. And then even regionally, we think about that. Americans are the worst about this. Americans are the worst about thinking that, you know, worldwide Christianity rises and falls on the American church. What we don't realize is there are more black and brown people that are Christians around the world than there are white people and are black or brown people in America that are in the church. Right? There are more African Christians than there are American Christians. There are more Asian Christians than there are American Christians. Right? And, but we only see American Christians. No, we only see our, our church. We don't, we don't often see the big one. And we need, we, so it's helpful when we start understanding this definition. It's help, it gets us out of our shell a little bit to recognize this. God's doing, these, God's doing all kinds of stuff all over the place. And that same God that's doing this thing in Hundreds of thousands of individual churches is also doing it right here in, in our church. So let's look at five metaphors for the church that, that are kind of regular, reoccurring in the, in the Bible. 
Uh, do you want to know what I am learning right now? I should have learned my lesson last week. I prepare way too much to talk. I don't have near enough time. And so I'm going to have to figure this out. But we're going to go quick, okay? And I'm going to try to pair it back next time. I want to look at five metaphors. We're just going to have to run through these. The first is the metaphor of the family. Does somebody have 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2? Same respect to women that you would to your sister. Hmm. Yeah, that here, here, here the argument Paul's making. That that you are brothers and sisters. And well, demographic in this room, I'm gonna say we're brothers and sisters, okay? I'm not gonna labor anybody the mothers and fathers, but maybe we should. You're, that, that's who we are. That's the relationships that should be driven in the church. In uh, just a couple, three weeks, we're gonna get to the passage in Mark where they're going to come to Jesus and be like, your brothers and sisters are here. And your mother and brothers are here, I think is what, what they say. And Jesus is like, my, uh, my brothers and sisters are those who believe the gospel, right? That's, that's Jesus' reply. Because this is, this is family. And the church is, the church is a family. And sometimes when people get upset with the church, I'll, and they, they come to talk to me about it. I always ask them this question. I said, do you, do you ever get upset with your family? Well, yeah, right? I get upset with my family sometimes, you know. I know y'all think me and Christy have a perfect marriage, but we don't. You know, sometimes, sometimes I get on her nerves. Now, she never gets on my nerves, but sometimes I get on her nerves. You know, and sometimes our kids don't do what we ask them to do. Like, we don't always agree on, on everything, and neither does your family. Sometimes they're significant. You specifically you get a kind of extended family to be... Well, that's what the church is. We're a family. And when we, when we think about it like that, like, I'm not going to walk away from my family. This is my family. I'm going to work it out. Because we're viewing one another as this. I'm viewing the women in this room like they're sisters and mothers. I'm viewing the men in this room like they're brothers and fathers. Or now I'm at the age where I can say sons and daughters for a lot of people in our church, right? So, so that's the way that we're viewing each other. And I don't walk away from my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters and my, my children. I don't walk away from those people. I fight for them. I fight with them. We, I, I love them. I'm, I'm, I'm in it with them. And that's, that's why the church is a family. The church is a club, right? You're not paying a membership due, and a year from now you'll determine if you're going to pay your membership dues again or not. It's a family you're part of. And uh, when, when that sinks into us, it, it changes the way we, we often will relate to one another. The second is that we're the bride of Christ. Somebody read 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2 for us. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, as I bestowed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. All right, so, so in one sense, we're, we're a family, and in another sense, we're one unified bride. Now, that's, that's kind of, it's always been a unique one for me because I'm a man, I've never been a bride right? Some of you have been brides before, um, but we take that, that image of a bride, that the bride is presented, you know, pure and unadulterated to her husband, and that's, that's the imagery, that's the metaphor that, uh, that the New Testament author is providing for us, and, and so here's, here's how we, we want to think about it, that, that it's not just me, it's not me that I'm the bride of Christ, it's that we, we, us are the bride of Christ, and then 
we, we run with those ideas that it's, it's about purity and it's about holiness and it's about being set apart for, that's what a bride is. She's, that's why she wears white, right? And set apart for her, for her groom. And that's what the church should be. So then what does the church do together? The church helps to purify one another. We help to make one another holy. We help to make one another righteous because we together are the bride of Christ. Not just me, not just you. That if there is any major issue, there's probably multiple major issues with the way a lot of American Christians think about church. But one of them is that we have so individualized Christianity because we are in a hyper-individualized culture. It's, and it's fine from a cultural perspective, I guess. From a church perspective, though, it is completely at odds with the, with the New Testament. This is, a, this is an us issue. We, the church, together are, are in this as a family and as a unified bride. Um, in a couple of places, we see the church referred to either as branches or trees. John 15 is one of those places, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, Romans chapter 11 says, I've got that one here. Romans chapter 11 says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nursing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. I'm going to talk about exactly what he's talking about here in, in just a minute. But the metaphor is that, that we are vines and, and branches. Vines and branches are things that grow. They're things that are pruned. But again, they're things that are part of one whole body that Jesus is the trunk, that Jesus is the main vine, right? And we as church are branches off of it, but not just as individuals, as, as the body, that together we're doing the work of, of growing. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the, body, the, the, the church is called the, the, the temple of God, that we are now the temple. Think about this for a minute, that... For centuries, the people of God went to a place to worship him. And it's why I'm really careful about how I refer to our worship center in there. I don't correct people over it. But if you want to know, like the least favorite word I have for that room is God's house. You want to know why? Because God doesn't live in that room. <laughs> and when we think about what the temple was, the temple was the place where God lived. Now, God was everywhere. But the Spirit of God uniquely dwelled within the Holy of Holies of the temple. So you could say, in Old Testament times, that's God's house. And guess what? It was God's house. Because in the inner, in the inner room, in the Holy of Holies, this is where God was. Where's God now? In his church. And the church is in this building. We don't have a Holy of Holies. You know, I have an office, and inside of my office is the room that I study in. And it's small, and I have a little door, and occasionally people refer to it. Like it's the Holy of Holies, you know, people make that joke. And I just, I just laugh along with it, it's whatever. But we don't have one of those here, right? There's no sacred place here. Because it's just bricks and mortar and steel and concrete. The church is the temple of God. Probably the most common metaphor for, at least Pauline metaphor, Paul's metaphor for the, uh, the church is body, right? In 1 Corinthians 12, he goes into great detail talking about that you are one body. Right? That some are the hands, some are the eyes, some are the ears, some are the feet. That we're, we're a body together. Right? Individual members of it, but still part of the body. And if one, member, one part of the body struggles, the whole body struggles. So if one member struggles, the whole member struggles. Right? So we make up for one another's deficits and deficiencies that we help one another 
that the back helps the arms and the right the, the, this is this is the metaphor why what what is the New Testament telling us the New Testament by, by calling us a, a temple and a bride, by calling us a, a body and a branch and a family. The New Testament is giving us this idea that we together are this holy set apart community of, of, of believers for this purpose to be God's church, to be his bride, to be his temple and to be, to be that together. All right. Now it's already seven o'clock. Um, and I've been told I have to give you breaks, okay? So I'm going to give you a really quick break. We're going to come back at 7.05, and we're going we're gonna to move on. I'm going to adjust my schedule. I promise you I'm going to teach everything I'm going to teach. I'm just going to put some stuff into some other weeks. But I'm going to give you a break till 7.05, okay? Take a break. All right, folks, that was, I was timing it. Um, here, here's what I'm going to do. There are two sections still on that front page, one on the church in Israel and one on... Uh, the church and the kingdom of God. I, I checked to make sure both of those are actually addressed in that in the first chapter of this book. Uh, the church in Israel at the beginning of the chapter, the church of the kingdom of God at the end of the chapter. Um, he he has a fair treatment on it. I I, I actually agree with Dever. I think on on, all, on most of those points. Um, I would uh, encourage you to read that. If I have time when we get to the end, I may address it. Um, but anyway, since it's in the book, I don't feel like I'd necessarily have to get at it. I checked to make sure it was there. So, but I do want you to do, fortunately, I have taught the part that, I, that was our discussion, our coming off the break discussion question. So um, let me get this. You're, what I want you to talk about in your groups, there's two questions here. Which of the five New Testament metaphors for the church, family, bride, branch, temple, body, do you believe is best displayed in our congregation? So we're thinking about the local church, Nansen River Baptist Church. Which one of those do you think is best displayed here? Then, which one do you think needs the more work on displaying? Now remember, those of you here last week, every week I'm gonna, we're going to poke the bear a little bit. All right, That's the goal of this, is that we're going to look at our church and say, what, what do we need to do? And so this is, this is one of those, hey, brag on us for a minute and then, then work it out, all right? So you're going to get just a few minutes to do both of those questions at your table. All right, folks, I'm going to stop you because if I let you keep going, I'm not going to get to say anything else. All right. So we ask you to, to think both, uh, really, really think critically, but to think both from a positive standpoint and, and, and maybe a corrective one, how, how we could uh, apply these metaphors better in our church. What I, I heard a lot of family language early on. I heard a lot of people talking about us as a family. I, I Listen, that, um, there's nothing that makes my heart more glad. I think that's a really good thing. I think it's a good thing for the church anytime, but in our community, that's, that's harder to accomplish. That's easier to accomplish. You know, I was a youth pastor for four and a half years in First Baptist Sandersville, Georgia. And uh, all of them people had known each other since the Civil War, okay? I mean, they had been around, their kids had been around. Nobody was moving to Sandersville, Georgia, except for us. And they were loving people. They were super gracious. Brody was born there. And, and, but that was, an, that was a church that, for the people that had been a part of that church for a really long time, it certainly was a family. But it was a hard family to break into sometimes. In our community... It's more difficult to feel like a family because 
People move in and out of here all the time. So for our church, for that's where a lot of your tables went, very first thing was this is a place that feels like a family. Um, that's an accomplishment. That's something the Lord is doing um, through us. So I, whatever else you talked about, I hope, they, I hope you found things that were encouraging. And we always want to be able to find things that we can keep improving on. I, I want to see us be the kind of family that's willing to continually sanctify one another. That's the bride and the temple, right? That we're continually pushing each other towards righteousness and holiness and Christ-likeness. Um, that, that's what I want to see us continue to do. I know we do some of that. Small groups do a lot of that for us, but, but I, I pray that the, this, these sessions here will, will be, some of that, be some of that for us. All right, so we're going to skip to the back page. And... There is a back page, isn't there? Yeah, it's where the question was. One of the questions. All right, good. All right. So if, if I have time, which I won't, I'll come back and talk about the first things, but there, there's some reading there uh, in the first chapter, at the beginning of the first chapter. And then you read that second chapter, which talked a lot about the one true church. And I'm not going to really deal with the one true church uh, in, in the way that Dever presented it, but I, I do want to deal some with the essentials of church. That's how I want us to, to conclude this, first, this second session, really. It's thinking about the essentials of the church because next week we're going to answer the question, what does the church do? And we're going to look at a number of things, um, probably eight or nine different things that the church does. But if I, if I wait until next week to deal with the essential things, it may get, they may get lost. Because those, the things that we're going to see that the church does are really an extension of these two things. And these two things were established, and Deborah deals with this a little bit in the book. These two things were established. He'll deal with them at the beginning of the third chapter that you'll read next week. Um, when, when, during the Protestant Reformation. So for those that may not have a lot of church history knowledge, the Protestant Reformation took place 500 years ago with names that you've likely heard of, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others, who over the course of a couple of generations, um, at first sought to reform the Catholic Church from some pretty poor doctrine and practices that were in, in place in the day, and failing to do so, which they did fail to do so. The Reformation failed in its original attempt to reform the church. It became its own church, the, the, the church. And so they began to ask questions, um, as the reformers often did. I think that's all they took time to do, was really what is a church? And so Luther, writing about this, and then Calvin echoed Luther, they, they both basically said the same thing, that the church does two things. Now, we're going to next week see the church does a lot more than two things, but that it's essential core, the, the, that a group of people, aren't a church if they're not doing these two things. One is that, they're, that they have a ministry of the word. All right? The, the word is preached. We could say it like that. Now, you, you may ask, well, what, what word are they talking about? When, when Luther and Calvin were, were talking about that, when the Reformers were talking about that, and when we're carrying that into now, we want to be really careful. We want to be... in. I'm going to use a buzzword. We're going to be inclusive, but not in inclusive to a fault. We, we want to be inclusive of people that disagree with us over certain matters. 
which is why I started last week or talked last week about theological triage, that, that we have first, second, and third order doctrines. If you weren't here with us last week, go back and listen to the podcast. It's really important for our conversations because we're not talking about, and it's going to matter for both of these points, we're not talking about people that are going to preach the word exactly like I do or in the exact same way, the same form or function or even content that I would preach. But that first order doctrines, doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith are proclaimed in that church. So for a church to be a, actually be a church, a, to have a distinguishing mark that we would look at a group of people and say, that is a church, that they would have a true ministry of the word, at least as it relates to first order doctrines, that they were proclaiming salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, that they are confessing there is one true God, that they believe in the bodily resurrection and future return of Jesus, right? So that that church, to say it like I said it last week, that that church would affirm through scripture the, the, the apostles' creed, if you will, the, the essential nature of the church, that, that, uh, the essential nature of what it means to be a Christian, that if a church is deviating from that, and, and there are places that deviate from that, that call themselves churches, we would say that it's not a church in the sense of what the Bible says is a church. Now, Luther and Calvin were asking that question as it relates to their relationship with the Catholic Church, with the Roman Catholic Church that existed in the 1500s. I'd be interested to see what they thought about the Roman Catholic Church today, but that maybe is a conversation for another time. Um, but in our world, in our culture, we have uh, places that claim to be churches. I mean, you go down this road, down Bennett's Pasture Road, on the right and the left, before you get to Nansman Parkway, are places that call themselves churches, one a Jehovah's Witness and one Latter-day Saints, that do not proclaim first order doctrine, that we would say are not churches. They, they got church on the sign, but I would graciously in love say they, they, have, they have wandered away from the core tenets of the Christian faith to the point where what they are doing there is no longer part of the church. Now, we wouldn't say that, even though we're distinctly Baptist, we wouldn't say that about our Presbyterian brothers and sisters or our Lutheran brothers and sisters or our Methodist brothers and sisters or any, you know, we wouldn't say that then. Um, but, but we would have to say that about, about people that have so distorted first order things. So that the first mark is that there is a, there is a ministry of the word, right preaching of the word. And the second is also going to require some explanation and that is that there's a right ministry of, and I'm going to use the word that we don't use in Baptist life, of the sacraments. We call the sacraments ordinances, which may mean Luther and Calvin would say we don't rightly administer them. I don't know. Probably not to the point. Um, but the sacraments or the ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, again, we're talking first order here. So we used as an example baptism last week as a second order doctrine that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters baptize infants and we baptize believers. And they would say that we should baptize our babies and we should say that they should baptize their believers. But we can still affirm that one another are Christians in actual churches, right? Um, but when, when Luther and Calvin are talking about the right administering of the sacraments, what they're really doing, you've got to understand that they're dealing within the 1500s, their position within and 
and criticism of the Roman Catholic Church, what they're really talking about is the churches attempting to function as churches. That they, that they, they have a guarding system, and we're going to have a whole day, uh, week six, is how do we guard the church? They have a whole system. We, we fence the church to say this is what it means to be a part of us, and this is what it means to be a continual part of us. That's what baptism and the Lord's Supper are. It's the initial sign and the ongoing sign of the New Testament church. And so the argument from for the last 500 years have been, if we're looking for the, the essential distinguishing characteristics of the church, we're looking for a place that has, has the core tenets of Christianity taught from the word, and they have a structure that admits people, that rightly admits people into the church and holds them accountable within that structure through the, through the Lord's Supper. Now, we may disagree on the nature of the Lord's Supper or the nature of baptism. It's okay. I think we can still affirm together that these are all still churches. So we're going to unpack a lot of other things the church does, but preaching and the Lord's Supper and baptism aren't so much things the church does as, as really who the churches are. A place that doesn't baptize, regardless of how you're practicing baptism, or doesn't take the Lord's Supper, I would say that's not a church. That's the churches are supposed to do, do those things. A, pre, a place that's not studying God's Word, it's, it's not a church, because that's, that's, that's what we do. In, so this is essential to the nature of who the church is, ultimately leading to true and false churches. And so we can use this same measurement today to determine true and false churches. And within... Catholicism or even within Protestantism or even evangelical Protestantism, we both have, you know, great degrees of differences from one place or another. So it's impossible for us to say, you know, blank denomination that doesn't have, and I, and I named some, but I wouldn't consider those denominations. I would consider those religions unto themselves. But, but I can't say that all Presbyterian churches are true churches. I can't say all Baptist churches are true churches. But I can't also say that all Lutheran churches are false churches or all Methodist churches are false churches because th there's, there's distinctions amongst each local church. So we have to evaluate local churches based off of first-tier doctrine and to determine if this is actually a church or not. Now, it could be a church that we have distinct differences with, distinct. And that's going to be important as we move forward to recognize that our church is distinct in who we are and the church next door is distinct in who we are and we have some pretty significant disagreements. But that I can look at them and say, you're a church because you're doing these things, or at least on first order issues, you're doing these things. And they can look at us and say the same thing and we can, we can agree on it. But it doesn't mean that we would do everything together. And that's a big question that arises and it's how I, I'm saving some time because I want to give you at least five minutes on this at the end. We get questions a lot about participating with other churches on things. Now, we participate in the Southern Baptist Convention and the SBC of Virginia because we as churches have agreed together on the Baptist faith and message and at least to say that our seminary professors and our missionaries and our church planters are going to agree according to that. So if we're going to fund education and we're going to fund church planning, we're going to fund missionaries, we're at least funding them according to a core doctrine, which is the Baptist faith and message. And, and then we've agreed on that on the national level, the state level, and then recently our church a year ago affiliated with the Pillar Network, which has which is a little narrower, distinctions. We'll still participate with other Baptists, but we're going to say, hey, look, if we're going to expend 
like significant time and energy doing some things that we're probably going to do it with some churches that even share some additional distinctions with us. And that's what the pillar network is. It's, it's, it's even honing down a little more on some of those second level uh, issues that are, that are important to our church, but maybe not important to all Southern Baptist churches. But then you get to, you're broader than that. You get to all of these other denominations and we get questions sometimes like, well, why don't we join this, you know, coalition or, why, don't, why aren't we a part of this event that's this multi-denominational thing? And sometimes the answer is, well, we didn't know about it. We would have joined it if we known about it. And sometimes the answer is a little more complicated than that. It's because of the other, quote-unquote, people on the podcast can't see me doing quote fingers, um, the quote-unquote churches that are involved in it. Or maybe they are true churches, but they are so different than us, there are some things we could do with them and some things we can't. And that's what I want you to talk about. So I want you to actually practice some theological triage for a minute and answer this. What are some beliefs that churches may hold that should prevent us from doing the following things? So maybe you can't get through all of these, but I would say that there are some churches that we could do some things with and other churches, you know, broader sections of churches we could do, other, do a different set of things with. So things like going on a mission trip. What are some, so what are some, denomin- or some doctrines that, a church could hold to that would prevent us from doing a joint mission trip or would prevent us from doing social ministry together, like feeding the poor or prevent us from actually coming together and worshiping together on a Sunday morning or providing a letter or accepting a letter of membership transfer. By the way, I have different answers for all four of those things. So those are intentional. All right. So at least pick two or three of them. And that's where I want you to end. You got about four or five minutes to be able to do that before I close this in prayer. All right? Man, time goes by on Wednesday nights. Y'all got no idea. It goes by faster on Wednesdays than it does for me when I'm preaching. I just, I don't, I got to figure it out. So there you go. Go at it. It is 7.30. So I'm going to, I'm going to unpack this quickly. I've told I'm supposed to get done at 7.30, but hold on. My wife's in the child care, so I, um, I'm supposed to end on time. Um, I was listening in. Some of you were doing really good here, and, and you even started making some distinctions. I think I heard of it at a couple of different tables. Well, it, de- it depends on what the mission trip is. Yes. Because it does. You're right. It would, de- it would distinctly depend on what, what the mission trip is. Um, it depends on what the purpose of some of these things are. And then uh, I, I definitely heard some guarding, like, membership, you know, like membership letters. That, that's, that's, a, that's kind of a unique subject of itself, but... Uh, you, you see how these, we would have to ask these kind of questions that, that even amongst second tier, second order doctrine, d- depending on what some of these things are, we would have to say, listen, y'all are my brothers and sisters in Christ and we love you and support you, but we're not going to be able to do this thing with you. We would happily do this. I would happily feed the poor and march for life beside anybody, yep. right? Like beside anybody. Um, but if we're going to go plant a church, <laughs> we're going to have a whole lot of things we're going to have to agree on before we go spend that kind of time and energy into, into planting a church, right? That, those are kind of two extreme. I mean, if we're going to take a membership letter, we only accept membership letters from other Southern Baptist churches. And even then, we still put people through the same process as we put people joining by statement of faith um, because we'll, we'll see when we get to guarding the church, the keys of the kingdom matter, all right? So... Let me pray for us, and, and we'll be done. God, thank you for great discussion. Uh, help me, God, in coming weeks to pare this down. 
We just, your word is so rich. And thank you, God, for it and how it blesses our lives. Thank you for the, the body of Christ and how the body of Christ blesses one another as brothers and sisters uh, together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.